Welcome once again, my friends, to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you from my little studio in the centre of Stockholm, Sweden, where I've lived for more than 24 years now. Doesn't time fly? You are listening to the podcast for the 70 million Irish people or people of Irish descent around the world. It's a weekly affair. I try to bring it to you every week. Uh, I'll tell you why there's been a little bit of a gap there last week now in a few minutes, but it's a weekly podcast concentrating on the lives and the world and the careers and the art and the, and the research of Irish people all over the world and there are some fascinating stories out there. I started this podcast uh, with a simple idea that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad and my god sure don't just prove me right every week. If you have a story to tell and by god they're queuing up at the moment but I'm always looking to hear more stories right so if you know of anybody uh, anywhere in the world who is Irish or of Irish extraction or is working with Irish music or culture or books or food or anything else like that please do get in touch you'll find me at philip ablana on instagram at philip o'connor on twitter that's probably the best place to find me waffling around the place yeah so just get in touch or you can mail to philip at ablana.se if you'd like to support the podcast and sure who wouldn't like to support a podcast serving 70 million people uh, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm for a five a month there you get this podcast you get the irish and sweden podcast you get the premier swedes podcast you get the arrowman in stockholm podcast all those podcasts cover in various different aspects of uh, life for the Irish in Sweden, for politics, for media, for football, and all that kind of thing. And there'll be more interviews and that, you know, sort of dropping in and out, and we'll see wh- where we can shoehorn them in to the podcast feed as we go along. Before we get into this week's interview, right, this week's interview is a fascinating character called Dr. Kevin Deegan. And Kevin lives in neighbouring Finland here, so only across the Gulf of Bothnia from where I'm sitting in Stockholm. And he is working with a Finnish company called Valio in the, in the food sector, right? And he is their director of innovation or the head of innovation there which I find fascinating he's actually the second person in a relatively short space of time that I've talked to with a similar job the other was Gavin Boland he I interviewed him on the Irish and Sweden podcast and he is doing a similar job not the same but a similar job for Absolute Vodka the very famous Swedish vodka brand uh, and two very different stories two very different ways of working two very different characters as well but it's fascinating to see Irish people uh, being put in a position where they're working with innovation so Kevin Kevin is coming up very shortly, but before we speak to him, uh, I wanted to tell you about two books that I've been reading lately, right? So I do two things. Uh, well, I actually do three things. I either buy physical books because that's where we started, uh, and I read them at night before I go to bed, or I buy e-books because they're easier to transport. And I have one of those flippy job phones or the fold-out phones from Samsung, right? So it's perfect for reading e-books when you're on planes or trains or automobiles or, or that kind of thing. So. Uh, and then I use the Audible, right? Audible, I think, is Amazon service for audiobooks. And God knows people go nuts at you for supporting Amazon. But for, I think it's, it's like six euro a month or something like that. And you get uh, one credit every month, which is equal to one book, right? And there's been two brilliant Irish books uh, that I've been in, indulging myself in the last while. One is by Cork comedian slash actor uh, Tyg Hickey. And the book is called Portrait of a Piss Artist as a Young Man, right? You'll know Tyg from these great videos that he does online where he plays several different characters he did one in particular about the breakup of Great Britain which was an absolutely hilarious video but it was both hilarious and uh, there was an awful lot of grains of truth in it as well so uh, it's well worth watching there but basically the story is that uh, Tyg is an alcoholic and uh, was a fairly uh, Olympic levels of drink, uh, drinking and drug taking for many years and it's about his struggle to deal with that addiction and to come out the other side of it it's not as, you know a hero's journey in some ways because because, you know, he talks very openly about his faults, about letting down his young daughter, uh, about his mother, his relationship to his family, about a brother of his who lived with a disability and how he almost sort of let him down at the point where the chap was about to die. It's a very stark book. It can be difficult to listen to. It's one of those I'm listening to on Audible at the moment. But it's certainly worth listening to as a story of addiction because at the end of the day, because of the fact that he came out the other side of it, there's a great sense of hope that comes from it as well. Because if a fellow who has been, you know, taking the drugs that he's taken and drank, you know, the entire sea of alcohol that he's done can do it, 
it's it, like if he can give all that up well then I think pretty much anybody can give it up you know so if you're if that's your kind of thing if you're into self-help if you feel that you have a problem like that yourself and that you know you need a little bit of inspiration maybe uh, you need basically to find out that yeah this is actually possible well then I can heartily recommend either reading the book or the ebook or certainly listening to it because uh, again it's one of those ebooks that Tyg himself narrates and it's up there with the late Sinead O'Connor's biography Rememberings for just a brilliant narration I think it's always better when uh, the writer or the subject of an autobiography reads the book themselves the audio book themselves so that one was brilliant and the other brilliant book that I've uh, read recently and I read it in about two sittings was Aoife Moore, the Irish political correspondent. She did work for the Irish Examiner and she also worked for the Sunday Times. She's freelance at the moment, but she's written a book called The Long Game, which is basically the inside story of Sinn Féin. Now, unless you've been hiding under a rock, if you're paying any attention to Irish politics and Northern Irish politics over the last while, you will know that Sinn Féin has gone from being sort of, you know, referred to as the political wing of the IRA to the biggest political party on both sides of the border. And they are very, very, very likely. You probably couldn't get a better them at this stage to be in government in the south in the republic after the next election right so uh, Aoife is from Derry she would be from a nationalist background she would say herself probably not a republican background but a nationalist background uh, her family uh, were among the victims of Bloody Sunday I think she had an uncle Paddy who was killed on Bloody Sunday so these are people who would have been very much entwined and very much uh, steeped in in the politics of Northern Ireland and the reality of what went on there but that's not to say that this is sort of you know um some sort of uh, a homage to Sinn Féin it is absolutely not that at all it's a very like I, I found it to be an excellent work of journalism in terms of it goes in it takes stories to illustrate what the party is about the party de- declined to cooperate with her so the party leader Mary Lou Macdonald whom I know and who's a very nice person and I'm quite disappointed with the fact that she didn't engage with Aoife because the book would have been better had she done so but Aoife didn't let that bother her and she went and she talked to I would say dozens if not hundreds of people in Sinn Féin about the party and about how they came to be so a lot of it sort of deals with this sort of post-civil rights post-bloody Sunday period and how Sinn Féin went from being a very secretive organisation that wouldn't take its seats in any parliament to being still very much a very secretive organisation but that takes its seats certainly in the south and in the Stormont Assembly which of course isn't currently sitting because Northern Ireland isn't really functioning very well as a democracy but it is a book it's very well worth reading and in the context of you'll, you'll see Aoife being interviewed a lot she was on the second captain's podcast which i'm sure a lot of you listen to uh, she did a great interview with my friend ken early there which was very enlightening and that so you'll see her out and about and she also spoke to me a few months ago on was it on this podcast i think she spoke about uh, the good friday agreement and the legacy of the good friday agreement so if you enjoy that and an awful lot of people listen to that podcast i think it's probably the biggest uh, listenership that we ever had for a global gale podcast um, so you know, if you heard that podcast and you're curious, I definitely think that this is a book that you should go and you should uh, you should read it. I don't know if there's an audio book out yet. I don't think it is. I'd love to hear Eva reading it herself, and I'd certainly listen to it again if she did. But it's definitely worth listening to because. Um, uh, as I was about to mention there, actually, in the context of, you know, the Wolf Tones, the Irish sub band singing rebel songs, turning up at the electric picnic, and everybody going, oh, they're glorifying the IRA and this kind of crack, and the Irish Taoiseach, uh, Michal Martin, is he Taoiseach? Is he Taoiseach? I can't remember at the moment, but they're rotating between himself and Leo Varadkar, but he's talking about how Sinn Féin are, in inverted commas, infecting a new generation of young people, which I think is a pretty disgusting way to refer to young people. But she gives a very nuanced view of the party. As I say, it's not an homage to them by any stretch of the imagination. But if you read that book, you will have a much greater understanding of it. And just while I'm on it now, I said I was only going to talk about three, uh, two books, but I'll throw in a third one. There's an American author called Patrick Radden Keefe who wrote a book called Say Nothing About the Troubles um, and a lot to do with the likes of Gene McConville and... Uh, the disappeared people who would have been disappeared and accused of you know uh, committing crimes against the IRA etc etc that's also an excellent book but the first two Tyg Hickey A Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man and Aoife Moore uh, The Long Game I think it's called Inside Sinn Féin the, but The Long Game is the name of the book pick them up lads because I think that you will enjoy them very much much as I think that you will enjoy this chat coming up now with Kevin Deegan Kevin is a Wexford man I found him on LinkedIn and since this interview took place I was actually talking to somebody else uh, it was 
Hannah Fraser, who works for Enterprise Ireland. I think she's the head of Enterprise Ireland in the Nordic region here. And Kevin's name came up again. So, you know, certain people, once you discover them, it's kind of like, you know, if I tell you, uh, if I tell you to think of a red car, you'll go out and you'll see nothing but them on the street, you know. So once you notice a person the first time, they tend to turn up absolutely everywhere. And when you listen to Kevin, you'll understand what I mean. As I say, a Wexford man, and that was the kicking off point. So here he is now, Kevin Deegan, talking about innovating for value in the food industry in Finland. So what more do you want, lads? I'm always delighted to talk to people from County Wexford because that's where my dear mother is from, not too far from New Ross, from Ballyclan, that part of the country there. But we're not here to talk about her. We're talk, here to talk about how Kevin Deegan ended up in, is it Helsinki, Finland, I think you're in, working as Vice President of Innovation for Valio. That's a grand title, Kevin. It is grand, yeah. Nice to meet <laughs> you as well. <laughs> and lovely to yeah, meet you yeah. too. Glad to see that we share share our roots. I, I think actually my own family's roots go back towards the Valley Calan direction as well. So we might be distantly related. Indeed. Could we start with an explanation of your business card, sir? What does a vice president of innovation do at a company like Valio, which is a food company? I would know it's sort of more as a dairy company than anything else mm-hmm. or dairy type products company. So what, what's the actual role that you have there? Yeah. So I guess for people who don't know uh, about Valio, Valio is a, a traditionally a dairy cooperative which was set up in 1905 so actually older than Finland itself um, and it was essentially like many cooperatives um, around the world in the western world at least uh, the coming together of farmers in order to get uh, to organize themselves and to get the best price for the for the milk and to, to this day that's essentially our main kind of way of measuring the success of the company is by what what price we can give to the farmers for to our owner farmers. So, uh, what does innovation mean? Uh, what's my role in innovation? Well, innovation is a funny word because it's a word which is used quite a lot. It's overused, I would say. Um, everybody has their own kind of understanding or belief about what it could mean. Uh, it's the kind of thing that. I was in the airport recently and, and just walking through and you see the word innovation or innovate or to innovate used uh, quite a lot in adverts, for example. Um, and it's something where um, when I started in this role uh, just over a year ago, we actually, the first thing that we did was to think about, well, what does innovation mean? And that kind of seems like it should be a pretty straightforward answer, but it is in fact quite uh, quite difficult. Uh, and quite um, subjective. So if you, if you look at it, what it could mean, it could mean that, you know, the development of something new, it could be, you know, creating ideas and bringing them to fruition. Uh, it could be um, getting people to think differently. Um, it's, it could be a lot of these things. A lot of, I think when we talk about it in a business sense, quite often we talk about the end result of innovation and that's usually new products, new services, uh, innovations, if you like. Um, the role that I have really is to think about what does innovation mean to every person in the company, because everybody has a role in that. And to kind of, you know, to roll out the old cliches, but we kind of try to think of it as a verb rather than uh, a noun. It's something, it's a, it's a doing word, essentially. So how do we innovate and what does that then mean for everybody in the company? So we have uh, in Valio, Valio is based in, in Helsinki in Finland, and we have 12 production sites in Finland. We have two abroad. Um, and then we obviously have uh, consumer markets uh, in major markets in Sweden, for example, the Baltics, the US, China, um, just to name a few. And then we have B2B markets in over 80, 80 countries around the world. So we have about four and a half thousand people working for the company. So innovation should mean something for everybody, not just people, for example, who are making the new products or thinking about what the new products could be. But in everything that we do, um, innovation has a role. So essentially, to to answer <laughs> long story short, we, we tried to boil it down to something that makes sense to everybody in the company. So we started talking about rather than talking about innovation, we 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 kind of came up with the phrase better every day. So it means that in my job, what can I do to do, to be better than it was today or what or than it was yesterday? How can I how can I make uh, constant improvements, bigger or smaller, in order to make my work more efficient or more productive or to try something new. And that's something that we, we're trying to kind of essentially uh, build into the culture or what, what we're doing with innovation culture within the company. 
Mm. Um, there's a kind of an echo of that Google term that I'm not sure if I like it or not, which is move fast and break things, right? And there's this thing of, okay, one thing is wanting to be better every day, but is there a risk then that you're sort of in a constant state of flux, that you never really get to sort of, you know, to establish one particular way of working or one particular catalog of products or that you might move on from something before you've quite, you know, sort of exhausted the possibilities of it. Is that is that a risk with innovation, do you think, Kevin? Um. Yeah, I, yeah, it is a risk, but it is, I would say, a kind of a preferred risk. If if we think about the opposite, if we think about taking too much time to be sure, for example, or uh, you know, organizing too much in order to kind of tick all the boxes. I mean, these are things that kill innovation essentially. Uh, and it's very important to remember as well that one of our biggest challenges or barriers to, if we talk about how people innovate, is uh, time. So, I mean, essentially, we all have our busy schedules, we all have our, our calendars, we all have the kind of the 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 normal um, kind of uh, routine of what we need to do in order to make products, brand products, sell products, produ produce them, everything that's involved with that as well. And that has to go well, that has to go like clockwork as well. So this is another reason why we, we, we're trying to bring it to, into the everyday, because it's kind of, it's not something that, like some companies approach innovation, like you mentioned Google, where they will assign a certain amount of time. So you can say like, you can use a day a week or you can use two hours a week to think about something different. And that's one way to do it. And I'm not saying that's the wrong way, but also if we want to make it into a culture whereby everybody has a role, it has to be something that's constantly on your mind. It has to be something like, well, you know, we're doing it like this. Should we do it in a different way or could we do it like that? And then one very important uh, property of innovation and having an innovation culture which is absolutely essential, is uncertainty. And that's kind of, I think, goes to your question as well, is that like, we don't like uncertainty as humans. We want to be sure about things. But in order to be, in order to find something new or in order to try something new, we have to be uncertain and we have to live with that and we kind of have to embrace it as well. So it's kind of, the, it, maybe to answer your questions, it's to find that balance because we have to keep the engine running as well. You know, but we every, everything can't be, you know, uh, overly fast. But then on the other hand, if we're trying something, try it. If it doesn't work, learn and move on instead of, you know, putting a huge amount of resources or time into that to, 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 uh, to try and then get something out, which will take a lot longer. And I think it's something where in, in companies, like, I don't want to say legacy companies, but, you know, we... I was at a, an interesting talk recently where somebody somebody made the point that if you're in a big company, and you were starting your company today from zero and you had the resources, whatever resources you needed, what type of company would you build in order to fulfill the same goals that your company now has? And what would that look like? And the chances are it would look very different in terms of what type of organizations you have, what type of people you have working there, what types of processes uh, based on what we can do and, and, the, and the potential and the, and the opportunities of what exists today so this is something as well that you know we have the company that we have we have and which is a result of over 110 years of development um so there is parts of that as well that are maybe slower moving or maybe not as agile that we then need to kind of change but also appreciate like why why they're there and bring them forward as well so it's kind of you know you know steering a big ship essentially or or, or or changing the direction of a big ship is is a lot difficult more difficult than if if it was a smaller or more kind of a, a startup uh, focused ship it's interesting that you mentioned that because you know you think of farmers organizations and co-ops and that and we tend to mm. think them as being uh, think of them as being very historical very traditional mm. very conservative and yet here mm. they are with a vice president of innovation and um, your own background kevin you, you studied was it food science you studied in ucc what was the route yeah. like to get to this job for you in terms of education and experience um without sounding like an idiot i mean i i always kind of describe my own kind of career path as an evolution really it, there wasn't a kind of a, a grand scheme or a grand plan of w where it was going to go um when i was in school i was always interested in science uh i i don't know how how i ended up choosing food science i think one of the things with food science relative to other kind of traditional sciences is that it's very practical and you can see the practical manifestations in in every day you know there's the kind of the in the food industry there's you know, you're, you have this kind of, we, we say that like people are always going to need to eat, 
you know, there's a kind of a, there's a guarantee in that or there's a security in that. But it's like when we talk about, you know, uh, food on the chemical level or we talk about what happens during certain processes uh, from a chemical or a physical perspective, it's actually nice to, to see something, you know, that kind of relate that to what you understand and what you experience in your own life as a as a somebody who eat, who uses food or, or consumes food. So that was kind of um, the reason I, I went into that. And then I was in UCC for essentially seven years to the bachelor's and the master's. And I mean, Cork and, and University College Cork is kind of the home of dairy science and food science in Ireland and has been for a long time. There used to be a faculty of dairy science in, in UCC years and years ago. If you imagine there was only was it like six or seven faculties Overall, and one of them was 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 uh, focused on that, and it also reflects obviously the, the very important role of dairy in uh, Irish history and uh, the economy as well, and how that's developed. So that went there, and then obviously moved here to Finland, and actually coming from Ireland, which is a very dairy-like country, depending on the figures, uh, usually it's so that the 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 uh, Irish consume the most dairy in the world. And the Finns are second. So, I mean, there was a lot of similarities, a lot of, you know, in, in many ways, you know, yourself moving to, to a Nordic country, it's very different in language and stuff like that. But actually, one of the things that was very similar was the attitude towards food and towards dairy, especially. So that kind of was a, a good background to have. And then also I kind of developed more into uh, getting away from the lab per se and moving into more about consumer behavior and consumer psychology and why people make these decisions that they do uh, and then started working here in Valio kind of around that and since then it's been a kind of a development in that direction. We'll get to what uh, Valio actually do and more of what you do for them in a second but I wanted to talk to you about the subject of language. You're on the record of saying that learning Finnish has made your life in the, so the business community or in Valio much, e uh, much easier. Finnish is not an easy language to learn, my friend. So how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, it's an advantage in Finland to know Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> but, but very little else. Maybe Estonia. Yeah, <laughs> I, I often I often kind of joke here that, you know, maybe I should have uh, chosen a language that's spoken by a little bit more people than five and a half million people on a, on a world level, like, you know, Mandarin or, or Spanish or something. But I think, um, you know, coming here, I, I kind of made the... I made the commitment when I came here to integrate. Um, and part of that was not wanting to be the reason, especially kind of in work life as well. I mean, you could talk about, you know, social life and, you know, social networks and, 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 and friends and so on. And I mean, you, you always end up finding, you know, somebody and, and people that you, that you share interests with and everything like that. I don't think it's as big an issue there, but in work life, um, I found that um, Finland and you mentioned like Finnish being a very difficult language. It's kind of it's it's I would say it's a misnomer that it's a difficult language. It's it's different. It's very very different. It has different roots than than the other major European languages do. There's no similarities. I I spoke French relatively well before I moved here, and uh, even like being in Sweden or being in other Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries, you can kind of figure out some of the words based on, from having an understanding of French or German or Spanish. Uh, but in Finland, you, there's no hope. There's, there's absolutely no hope. So there was that kind of element of just getting on and living here. But then also kind of in the professional sense that it was my own challenge to, to myself to say that, well, I don't want to be the reason why if I'm in a meeting that, you know, everybody has to change to, to English or, you know, that that's, this is my, this is my issue. It's not every, other, other people's issues. And I think that's kind of, um, I'm not saying that's the way to integrate. It was my way to integrate. I'm kind of by nature, I, I always want to challenge myself and I'm kind of, I always want to put myself in situations that I, that I don't have control or that I, I want, I want to kind of be, be under kind of a, a bit of stress. I think that's probably what drives me a little bit. You know, so that was that was for me. I'm not saying that again, like that. You know, that integration is all about what you do at yourself. I think integration is a two way street in many ways, which is probably not how a lot of people, maybe in this part of the world, kind of see it. Uh, but for me, that was kind of it was my decision to come here, uh, and it was my decision to kind of you know uh, like continue a career and to and to develop a career here as well. So that was that was my challenge there, and and to be honest, like the. Um, I think one thing which I've noticed here as well that if it, it's 
it, when I said it's not a difficult language, it's a very systematic language. It's very different. So you're starting from zero, essentially. And there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of grammar and there's a, it's built in a different way that other languages are built. So if you go through it systematically, it's you, you get there. And there are certain things in Finnish that are maybe easier than other languages. Very few exceptions, for example. It's completely phonetic. It has the same alphabet, <laughs> which, you know, which is, is a little thing, but it's a very important thing as well. So, you know, it's probably, I speak of myself, I didn't find it as difficult as probably, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's maybe marketed as, but, but then the other thing is that uh, Finns as a whole are not, it, it, there's not a huge amount of immigration to Finland, you know, uh, there's not a huge amount of foreigners here. So they're not used to hearing people speak in Finnish uh, and that's kind of a challenge in a way as well because it, it it forces you as somebody who's learning Finnish there's no wiggle room really you kind of have to say if, if you don't say something perfectly or pronounce it perfectly uh, you know it's they're not going to understand it because they just don't they don't hear other other accents other nationalities speak in the language so that was kind of a drive as well and that's maybe something that makes it a little bit more difficult but the positive thing I have to say about it is that I have never um, I always say that me not being completely satisfied with my level of finish is my problem it's never been anybody else's problem so if i go somewhere and especially if i'm meeting somebody face to face or online or whatever as soon as they see me and they realize well this, this guy's not finished because they're going to stay to him um <laughs> there's, there's a lot of leeway you know so and you know some people my boss in my, in my previous company where i was working he actually said that you know it actually kind of endears people to to you as uh, that you're making an effort obviously but also then that they kind of listen to you a little bit more than they that maybe would if you were if you were just a, a native Finnish speaker for example as well so there's a lot of respect for that and, and you get a lot of a lot of leeway uh, in that mm. that you probably wouldn't get in other countries I think it gives you a better understanding of the the social context that you're Absolutely. living in and where you're doing business and that kind of thing as well did you have that frustrating thing when you're learning a foreign language in a foreign country people know when they look at us like we're pasty enough right and they know yeah. we're probably from Ireland or the British Isles and then they know we speak English so you try to say something in Finnish and maybe it goes wrong and then they reply to you in English and you know did you find that frustrating or did it happen to you at all or yeah. did people just keep going yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, amongst my my foreigner friends here as well, it's a common uh, thing to happen. And, and it's it's reflective of, I think, I think of how nice Finnish people are. <laughs> I mean, it's always it's always done in a very polite way and it's always done to help you, you know. But uh, so, for example, there might be an assumption that, well, you're a, tour, a tourist or, you know, that you're just trying it or something like that. But, um, you know, once you kind of say, to, and I have said to people, you know, I... I in, in the workplace, for example, you know, where some people, the other thing is some people like to speak English and some people want to for, you know, to practice or just to kind of keep up their own level of English. And that's been kind of, you know, a nice thing as well. But like, I have had to say to certain people that like, you know, just speak to me in Finnish. You know, if there's something, if I have an issue, I'll ask. Um, but, you know, from my point of view, and then the other thing was, is that, so my, my own team here in, in Valio, I've said to them several times that like, you know, don't be afraid to point out mistakes that I make and please do because you know it's worse that I make the same mistake constantly than somebody than somebody pointed out to me so that kind of there's maybe a reluctance in that and maybe a politeness as well which again it's a nice thing you know but it it, it doesn't uh kind of it, it doesn't help but then obviously it's it's coming from a place of of, of uh you know politeness mm. The food industry is absolutely massive, and I don't know if it's just me recently thinking that um, you know, there's such so much variety out there now. Companies like the one that you work for started trying to get the best price for milk, and are now into sort of you know different milks and almond milks and plant based proteins and all that kind of thing. What would you say are the sort of the biggest products that that Valio sells? Is it still dairy products that are yeah. the sort of the core of that? And these other products that are coming along now that I hate to use the word artificial, but are more sort of made in the food lab. Uh, and plant-based and that kind of thing what's the future for those kind of things are they eventually going to take over do they have to take over because of climate change if the planet's going to survive yeah well that's a big question i mean i think that it was so, so to answer your question like the biggest selling products that we have and that you know produce the, the largest amount of of income from the farmers are essentially the core dairy products of so cheese uh, dairy products, liquid dairy products, snack products, stuff like that. Um, and the vast majority of people still use those types of products. So there's a lot, there's a kind of, um, 
I was part of the project back 2015, 2016, when we started to look at uh, dairy alternatives or plant-based alternatives. And this, you can imagine that that was quite a, a sensitive discussion to have at the time. So our owners are the 4,000 Finnish farmers who, through the cooperatives who own the company. Uh, and, you know, we were thinking that, well, you know, we had identified actually through, you know, our consumer insight and consumer research, which I was leading, um, that there are changes happening in the world. So, you know, people are starting to think about things in a different way. People have different reasons for approaching food, you know, reasons behind choosing what they choose. Um, but there was a lot we didn't know about it. So we had a lot of kind of assumptions about dairy alternatives or plant-based. And one of the, uh, the assumptions that we had was that, well, surely the same person is not going to use both. For example, so somebody will use dairy products or they'll use non-dairy or dairy alternatives, whatever you want to call them. And when we actually did the research and we we asked thousands of people in, in Finland and in other countries, we found that that exactly wasn't the case. It was actually nine in, fin, in Finland, 90 percent of people who were using plant based yogurts or plant based kind of drinks and that kind of stuff were also using dairy. So they might buy, and I think this makes a lot of sense if you can see it in your own life or in your families or friends that somebody might use cheese, but then they might use oat drink, you know, no such thing as oat milk, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I've never uh, seen an oat get milk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of, uh, you know, there's like, um, th th there's, I think a lot of what we do in and what we did with, with Consumer Insight and what we do co constantly with, with Consumer Insight is to bring that understanding of, what actually happens? Because people, the other thing is that, which is very challenging, is what people say and what people do are two completely different things. So I, I'll give you an example of that when, when we talk about veganism. And veganism is is kind of, you know, the last, say, five, six years, it, it's getting, it seems like it's getting bigger and it seems like more and more people are vegans. But actually, when you look deep down into the figures and you ask people, the, the percentage of the population that are identify as vegans you know, you're talking one to two percent of the population, and 20 years ago it was about one to two percent as well. So that hasn't changed dramatically. What has changed is that people are thinking, well, why, or what's what's my reasons behind doing making decisions? So, for example, um, do I have some worry about dairy in general, or do I have some worry about meat in general, or am I thinking about the climate impact, or am I, uh, you know? Is, is there kind of specific things? Do I, have, do I have some allergy? Do I have like a, a bad feeling in my stomach if I, if I have an ice cream? You know, these kind of things. So people start to think about things, these things in a different way. And they say, well, you know, there are alternatives. There are alternatives. Um, in that same research that we did back, back in 2015, 16, when we asked why people are moving more towards, like why as, as somebody who uses these products, why have you started to use them? And the, the main reason that was given wasn't ethical or it wasn't environmental. It was just uh, for variety. So the fact that, you know, if you go into a, a supermarket, if you go to a cafe, there is now an oat drink as well as, you know, traditional milk. Or there is soya drink or, or other things as well. So you say, well, I could try that, you know, or it's the same with the, the yogurt snacks or whatever, or, or other products like that as well. So the, the reason... The reasons behind people making these decisions are very complex and there isn't one reason. Uh, and this was something that we spent a lot of time trying to figure out. And going back to your earlier questions about farmers and, you know, kind of that there is this maybe an assumption that there's a little, they're a bit conservative and maybe not moving with the times and stuff. I, I, I would challenge that dramatically. I think that that is not the case. And, and this, we have a very good example in, in our own development of these plant-based products, which we, which we then branded as oddly good which is is now a, a real success story for our company um you know the the end the final decision in whether we were going to go ahead and develop these products what laid with the farmers because they're the owners of the company and we put the facts on the table and said listen the world is changing people are starting to move towards these products people are not moving uh you know, uh, completely away from milk. So like I mentioned, there's still a huge amount of people that are using dairy products for whatever reasons. Uh, so it's not an either or thing. And we have the understanding, we have the expertise, we have a world-class R&D with about 150 people working in it that have been making and developing products for over a hundred years. Like this is, you know, we have a role to play in this space. And then also we started with oats and oats like, you know, in, in the Nordic areas uh, grow very well. And in some cases are coming from the same farm. So if I often say that, like, 
you know, if there wasn't a dairy industry or if there wasn't a meat industry, would there be a countryside? And that's a kind of dramatic thing to say. But Finland is very concentrated in the south, in the urban area around Helsinki um, and the capital area. And it's very sparse outside of the kind of the, the main urban areas. And you kind of have to kind of ask the question that, okay, the dairy industry, meat industry, and their associated industries and networks and services around those are kind of the lifeblood of the countryside, like it is in Ireland as well. So, you know, th- th- it, this this is, this is wasn't and isn't an either or question. This is how can we maintain and how can we develop um, the countryside and the livelihoods of the farmers and the families of our farmers. It gets, pardon the poem, it sounds cheesy, but that's essentially our, you know, uh, our reason for being as a company. If you look into your innovation crystal ball and we see the things that have happened, you mentioned oat drinks, you mentioned oddly good, which, by the way, I have to congratulate you. It's an absolute triumph of branding as well, because it right. really does address that that question of, oh, you know, is this, uh, you know, is this as good as milk? Oddly mm-hmm. enough, it is, you know. Um, but when you look into that, what do you see as the next steps in terms of uh, food science and in terms of finding these alternatives to, because there is a sort of, I think there's a resistance, particularly in Irish, uh, among Irish farmers to this idea that, you know uh, that we just have to cull all our herds and stop doing dairy and we'll all have to start eating soya beans for breakfast dinner and tea kind of thing where do you see the industry going in terms of what's coming next yeah that's a great question because it's it's a very complex network of things which are influencing each other and there's no one thing that can solve everything um i mentioned that you know I've been surprised, and I, I, I'll admit that I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised of, in terms of the te- technical uh, ability and the uh, progressive, na- progressive nature of farmers, for example. And, you know, like in Ireland, the, the production of milk, the, the amount of cows has increased dramatically over the last uh, 15 years or so with the abolishment of, of quotas. Uh, and it's not it's not just a matter of get more cows, make more milk. It's it's far much, much more complex and much more technical than that. It's essentially like, how do you utilize and how do you get the most out of every drop of milk? And that's kind of been our R&D's kind of, you know, way to work as well. It's like that, this is a very valuable substance uh, and a very miraculous substance as well. How can we get every every how can we utilize and, and get every advantage of that drop of milk? Uh, that we can, because we know that it has a, a significant effect and it has a, a detrimental effect as well. But there's a huge amount of different actions that are being taken around sustainability. And again, sustainability is not just, uh, you know, the cow is a part of it, but it's everything around that as well. It's what type of grass we use. How do we capture, car- capture carbon? or sequester carbon? Uh, how can we increase increase efficiency? How do we talk about waste? How do we talk about sustainability from a person, people point of view? Uh, to, to mention waste as an example, I mean, like something like cheese is a very intensive process. It takes a long time to make. Um, and there's a huge amount of uh, science and a huge amount of effort that goes into making cheese, which is not kind of, and for whatever reason, it's not really understood by, 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 the, by the public. And I, I'm kind of a bit, kind of passionate about this because cheese was my area of, of, of study when I was doing my master's for example as well I made a lot of cheese myself and you see the amount of effort and the amount of time and uh, uh, science that goes into it and the ripening of cheese for example um, but like you know if we talk about waste and and how sustainable if we produce something obviously the most sustainable you know way to carry on with that is somebody to buy it and use it and eat it but you know waste being produced for example by by throwing food away at home is a major major uh cause uh or kind of detrimental has a detrimental effect on on sustainable actions for example and you know we don't think about it in that way you know the onus is on is on industry and should be i'm not saying that we we're trying to shift the blame here but i think that the like where where is this going? I think that um, where it's going is that uh, there is um, there's a kind of a, a a better understanding and an increasing understanding, for example, now of how we can produce things in different ways. So you know, can we uh, produce proteins or can we produce uh, components of milk? in a different way? Can we produce protein, for example, for animal feed in a different way that we don't use, need to use soy, which might not be sustainable or which we don't use, by the way, as a company, as, as a feed, but I'm just giving as an example. 
Uh, and there's a lot of there's a, a lot of complexity in that. So you could talk about, for example, cellular agriculture, which is a term which we're using quite a lot now, which we're looking into as a company as well, and we're uh, investing in the kind of the research around that. Uh, you know, how can you using cells essentially produce the types of components, for example, in milk or produce the types of components like proteins and stuff like that, that they then could be used as feed products or could be components of food products and stuff in the future. Um, and there's no kind of, there's no silver bullet in this. There's no kind of quick win. I mean, I think that probably what we saw with the, with the rapid rise of the, uh, meat alternative products, which is now kind of, I wouldn't say it's dying, but it's it's maybe plateauing, or the kind of the maybe the the um, kind of the availability is is meeting the demand, or probably over over uh, being too much for what what's actually needed, and you're kind of seeing a consolidation of that a little bit. Uh, but the reasoning behind it is the same. So people want you as a consumer who want to who wants to have an effect on, or to to be able to have an effect, for example, on what your choices have on the environment. You know that you can start to think well if i make this choice uh then that will mean this or if i, if I make this choice that th that will mean this so i kind of i think that for example cellular agriculture is going to be much much more relevant in the future i don't think personally and i have I have a very good understanding of cheese and and like i said cheese is incredibly complex as a like on a chemical level and a molecular level uh, like producing cheese from cellular agriculture is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I think probably the the, the first forays into where we will actually see results of cellular agriculture is going to be, for example, producing components of milk that, that might be of value. So components that might be used in milk formula, uh, so you know, baby milk formula, where we try to mimic the you know the 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 characteristics of of uh, human milk, for example, with with cow's milk. Uh, these kind of things, you know, which are very expensive to produce or very ex expensive to extract from milk, you know, that kind of that seems to be the first stepping stone in that direction uh, for cellular agriculture. But it's a very interesting area because obviously the, the potential is is huge. Um, my final question for you, sir, and it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about this, especially for somebody from Dublin who maybe wouldn't be as au fait with agriculture, despite my Ballycallan connections there. <laughs> and how much of a role does food security play in what you try to innovate at Valio? And by that, I suppose I'm referring to what has happened in Ukraine, which was one of the major grain producers, uh, used to be called the breadbasket of Europe. Is that something you take into consideration or is it a sort of a, a byproduct, if you like, of the other innovations that you're trying to, to find? Yeah, it all feeds into, you know, we talk about circular economy um, and circular economies. I mean, you, you, could, you could spend a lot of time, you know, getting into deep down into what that means. But essentially, it's like, you know, that what we what we produce, we use and we try to reduce waste and we try to in increase efficiency. So uh, you can think about it going back to the drop of milk, you know, that 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 we get from the cow. Are we getting everything that we can out of that? Is there anything in that process that's going to waste, for example? And this innovation has a role in that because then it's essentially, you know, how can we improve um, uh, uh, cheese? Like I'll give you a very, very, very clear example, which is not nothing, nothing new, but essentially, cheese is cheese has been made for about six thousand years. It was uh, essentially from Mesopotamia where it started, and people started making it. The, the origin story of cheese is basically they used to they used to store milk in the stomachs of uh, calves, essentially. There was a way of storing milk, like the, obviously the stomach was removed from the calf. And they found that um, it would gel. And if they cut the gel, that the, the liquid would be removed. And if they added salt to what was left, the curds essentially, that they could store it for months and months. And that's cheese. Now, our understanding of that has, <laughs> you know, we know why that happened now. We know how we can influence that. But obviously, uh, up to quite recently, and if we talk about the 7,000 year time period, talking like the last 30, 40 years, uh, the byproduct of cheese production was whey. So you get curds and whey when you make cheese, and the whey is a liquid, the liquid kind of waste, essentially, when you make cheese. And whey is very rich in protein. And that used to go to the drain. That used to go to, 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 to the tip, essentially, uh, until somebody realized, hey, there's something in this that we could utilize. And then you get essentially whey protein from that. And that's a huge business. And in many, many cases... I'm not speaking on, on, on Valio's behalf, but in many cases, uh, that could even be more valuable than the cheese itself, because essentially it's a constant production where cheese takes time to ripen and all that kind of stuff as well. So that's kind of, you know, that's an innovation where somebody somebody thought, well, what, what can we do with this? And I mean, it wasn't, 
you know, somebody looked at that going into waste and think like that, you know, that's not good. That That's not something that we should be kind of, you know, kind of even before sustainability or the sustainability aspect came into the conversation, but just in terms of like, well, how do we increase the yield? How do we increase our efficiency here? Um, and I think that, that that's built into what we try to do as well in terms of innovation, uh, in terms of kind of, you know, the, the um, food security has a very, very, uh, important role in Finnish national security, for example, um, and something which kind of in the last year, again, has has been internationally referenced as kind of, a, you know, how, how it should be and how it could be. Um, and again, like Ireland as well, Ireland is, is very high up in terms in measures of, of, of food security, being an island that produces a lot of food. Uh, having a dairy industry, having a meat industry, and other industries as well, like I could provide that. But there's kind of um, there is a there's a very I think the the probably without getting into huge <laughs> huge amount of detail about it, Finland and given the, the history of Finland and and who its neighbor is, you know there there's many different layers of preparedness about you know possible eventualities that could happen, and food security is a very very important part of that as well. So obviously. We have a, we have a role to play in that, and we have had a role even as a company, for example, in in the Second World War and, and stuff like that, in in terms of you know feeding troops and and innovations in order to to uh, to make that happen. So it's kind of there is the but there's also the, the sustainability aspect of of food security, and something I think probably you've noticed in Sweden as well that this it's a very the domesticity of food is a very very important uh, choice criteria for consumers when they're buying food and people really appreciate that as well. So that's, that's kind of inbuilt into that as well. And obviously they, they feed each other. It's a fascinating area of study. It's a fascinating area of business. And it's been a fascinating conversation with you, Kevin Deegan. Thanks very much for coming on to the Global Gale. And no doubt there'll be some innovation in the near future where we'll have to get you back on again. But for now, thanks very much for taking part. Great. My pleasure. Thanks for talking. Hey, hold on, Kyllä meinaan kelepaa. Onpoka mahtavaa. Tämä on suorastaansa juhlavaa. Pääsilmää sen täyrellistä. Joo, mikä niin? Täysin ylivertaista. Onhan se valio. There you go, Kevin Deegan there. And uh, if you want to know what that clip was and what those lads were saying, I have absolutely no idea, lads. Can't help you there at all. All I can tell you is that it is an ad for Valio's Yogurt, a 30-second clip that uh, was published there in August of this year. And it's just a couple of farmers in the field joined by another farmer. One farmer gives the other farmer the yogurt and everybody seems to think there's great gear altogether. Uh, so maybe Kevin might come back on or Michelle Cotter or somebody who speaks Finnish. Uh, my old mate, Tim Sparva, used to captain the football team there. He might be listening to the Global Gale. You never know. He can come on and do a bit of old translation for us. But it was all about yogurt anyway. And as you heard, the very last word in the whole thing was value. Fascinating chat there with Kevin. Um, I find it amazing the things that can be done with food. I remember years ago when uh, they first started to extract things like creatine and protein powders and you'd start hearing dieticians and then that was when all these young fellas started to turn up playing rugby with the big biceps and the big triceps and sure Jesus there was more meat in them than there was in a butcher's window when you'd be looking at these boys like so it's uh, it's incredible and in terms of sustainability and uh, the environmental crisis that we're going through it's one of those things that we are going to keep returning to as we touched on in the conversation there with Kevin. Speaking of rugby, the Rugby World Cup is going on at the moment. As I'm talking to you now, Ireland have played their first game. They had an 82-8 victory over Romania. And they're facing Tonga the day after this podcast will be published. Uh, we will be returning to the subject of rugby now because they have two big games left, of course, against uh, South Africa and Scotland. So we'll be returning to the subject of rugby here on the Global Gale podcast. Uh, and then hopefully they will be going to the quarterfinals for, you know, and getting past the quarterfinals for the first time, getting to the semi-final. And then, of course, we would hope that Ireland will be in the final and then we just hope that they win the World Cup and perhaps more importantly if Ireland do win the World Cup that means that England cannot win it and of course nobody listening to this podcast is going to object to that particular outcome but as I say we will be returning to it and there might be the odd Twitter space live as well I've been talking to an Irish rugby player about doing these things live in the wake of some of the games I won't be able to do it after the Tonga game tomorrow because uh, I'll actually be going to see an Irish band called the Mary Wallopers who are coming here to Stockholm for the first time as far as I know and the Irish 
Irish in Sweden podcast next week, Neil and given a hostage to fortune. You should never do this before these things are recorded. But I'm hoping that next week's Irish in Sweden podcast is going to be about that gig. So we'll get that sorted out as we go along as well. Look at that is it for this week. Next week we'll be having a chat with an other, another author, uh, a Dublin-born musician, holder of Guinness World Records, writer of a book about anxiety, uh, is going to be coming on the show. I'm going to be talking to him actually this evening and I'm going to be recording that interview and that will be coming to you next week. We're moving the podcast publication date, lads. So instead of, previously it was on a Saturday, uh, 10 o'clock Central European time, but I'm going to move it to midweek because I think some of you might get a little bit lost there when it comes out on a Saturday morning because maybe the dog doesn't want to go for his walk or maybe you've done the supermarket shopping already by the time we get around to it. So I'm going to put it out there midweek and you can have it maybe on your commute or that kind of thing. So keep an eye out on your podcast feed Wednesday or Thursday. But the best way to do that is to subscribe on Patreon because you'll always get an email when it comes out. You don't have to contribute, but if you can't throw in a fiver, patreon.com, arrowman in Stockholm, that'd be deadly. And of course, subscribe to the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast feed on your favourite podcast platform. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you happen to get these things. It should be on all of them by now. And if it's not, let me know and I'll come back and I'll fight with them and it's on SoundCloud, everybody like that. Anyway, listen, have a great week and I'll be back to you again next week. Uh, and in the meantime, take care of yourselves, take care of one another and we'll be back again with more podcasts soon enough. Good luck. Good <laughs> luck.